Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 115 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, this is Adam, and I'm all by myself today. Uh, about one week after Jill gave me a hard time for leaving her all alone to do an intro, I am now doing an intro by myself. So she said it was awkward for her. It'll be just as awkward with me by myself. Um, today's episode is an interview that I did with Kate Moore. Uh, if the name sounds a little familiar, it's possible that you were on a book type of a website in the past couple of days because her latest book uh, is absolutely everywhere. She wrote a book called The Radium Girls, and we talk a whole bunch about it in the interview itself. But basically, it is a story of all of these women, and it's a true story. Uh, it's a story of all these women who spent uh, their very, unfortunately, short lives working with radium paint and ingesting that radium paint um, and you know, the circumstances surrounding that and, and why that happened and then the result of it as well. Uh, in addition to being an incredible author in her own right, Kate is also an editorial consultant. So she works with other authors to help edit their content. She's also a ghostwriter, and she's won several awards for her ghostwriting as well. Uh, so in the conversation, we talk about all those things. We go through what it's like writing her own books, what it's like uh, ghostwriting for other people, and then the differences between that and also editing books and just trying to decide you know, how those types of things work at the same time and, and juggling all of that. Um, she is a very, very smart person, and it was a whole bunch of fun. Uh, we recorded this a couple of months ago at this point. Uh, the reason being that the Radium Girls has been available um, in the United Kingdom for a little while now, uh, but it just recently became available in the United States um, about a week ago at the time that this will go up. So I wanted to wait until everybody that is listening can go and place a hold and borrow it and really enjoy this title. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Let us know on, on Twitter. You can find us at ProBookNerds. Uh, you can also find us via email. Find us. You can email us uh, at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You know, the two of us, when Jill is back in the office and I'm back in the office, see all those things together. Um, so yeah. Also, if you want to reach out and, and become friends with me, I mentioned this uh, once in an episode a while back, but I ended up with some really cool new followers. So if you want to find me on Goodreads, uh, my last name is Sokol, S-O-C-K-E-L. And as you've heard me say about 115 times, my first name is Adam. So if you want to friend me, uh, you can see all the different books that uh, I've been reading. I keep that up to date a lot. And um, you can also see kind of a sneak peek of some of the authors that will be coming up because I tend to read the books, obviously, of the authors that we're going to be interviewing. And then those will go up on my uh, my Goodreads page. So if you want to become friends with me, by all means. Um, it's also not that big of a secret. Our last names, you know, our Twitter account links to both Jill and I's personal Twitter accounts. So you could definitely find us that way. Um, 
I want to make a quick request. If you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, if you wouldn't mind going to iTunes and giving it a five-star rating, uh, we don't ask people to do it too often, but it really does help people who might also be interested in getting book recommendations uh, find our podcast a little bit easier. So if you're in iTunes or really any, you know, whatever podcast app you use, if you can go in there and give the professional book nerds a five-star rating, it helps other people find it, and it's really the best way that iTunes uses to um, promote and feature and, and all that good stuff. So, okay, that's kind of all the housekeeping I've got. Um, Jill is, I think, traveling to New Hampshire for work, uh, and then that kicks off a whole bunch of travel for the two of us over the next couple weeks. So you'll hear both of our voices, hopefully in the same room at the same time, a couple of times here and there. So, all right. I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Kate Moore. She is, again, the author of The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. So go ahead and enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by Kate Moore, who is an editorial consultant and author, as well as a former editorial director of Penguin Random House, with 15 plus years in the book industry. In addition to writing her own books, Kate is also a best-selling ghostwriter of novels across all genres. Her newest book, The Radium Girls, is available now in the UK and comes out in the US this May. Kate, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for asking me to. So would you mind kind of kicking off our chat just by giving our listeners a brief introduction to the Radium Girls in case they're unfamiliar with the story? Sure. So um, this is a true history book. So the women are completely real. And they are, the Radium Girls are the women from the First World War and the 1920s in America who used to paint numbers on watches and dials with luminous radium paint. And they were taught to lip point to put their paintbrushes between their lips. Now, radium is incredibly radioactive. <laughs> right. So what happened to the radium girls was they were swallowing radioactive paint. And so their story um, is an astonishing one of courage in the face of hardship, of strength and endurance. Because what these ordinary working class women did was to stand up against the firms who had poisoned them, who denied all responsibility for hurting them because the women began to get sick. Um, and their story is one of a kind of courageous fight for justice, essentially, because they took the firms to court in order to protect other women. And I have to say, th this story, first off, it's... I've had, went through so many emotions reading this book, both, yeah. you know, feeling just incredible sorrow for the girls and just pure rage for these people who refuse to accept responsibility and the part that I, I kept having this like tingling in the back of my brain because I could vaguely remember reading about this in college like just a page or two in yeah. a history book and that was really all they had so how did you come across these women's stories? So I found them through a play called These Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich, which I directed in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was directing a show about these real people, I wanted to make sure my production was as authentic as it could be, because I felt a real responsibility to do justice to them. Mm -hmm. 
So I read everything that I could about them and I realised there was no book that actually told their story. Mm -hmm. There are some books that look at, you know, how they've changed kind of, you know, occupational um, kind of health laws and things like that. But there was no book that told their incredible story almost as a novel and that was a tribute to the women themselves, you know, these ordinary women who showed extraordinary courage. And so that's why I wanted to write the book, because as you say, you know, some people have heard of their story as a footnote or they've read a chapter in a book about them. And I thought they deserved to have a whole book about them that brings them to life. I completely agree, <laughs> wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, so something, uh, we've been really fortunate on the podcast, we've actually had several authors who have dedicated a lot of their time to finding kind of similar stories like this, uh, stories of women whose, you know, for whatever reason, they, they didn't get their proper, you know, due. They weren't, you know, their their stories kind of been lost to history. And uh, something that really fascinates me is the research process for, you know, not just, it's one thing to discover the story. It's another thing to go about finding all of these important details. So for you, what was that research process like? I'm kind of imagining just hours in a very dimly lit library. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, but I did also get out of the library and kind of try and retrace their footsteps, mm -hmm. which was amazing. So I went to Ottawa, Illinois. I went to Orange in New Jersey, which is the two locations in the book that I sent it on. And I found their homes and I, you know, walked their commute. I saw where the factories were. I went to the churches that they attended. And so it was a real mix of that kind of dusty archive work, <laughs> which kind of sounds in some ways that it's very academic. But actually, you know, that process of discovering, for example, the court transcripts or discovering newspaper articles that they'd given that no one had kind of read for decades. Right. That was really special to actually find those voices in the archives. So even though it kind of sounds dry and dusty, actually it was incredibly moving and real because these were the women that I was writing about and here was their actual court testimony, you know. So that was actually really special. Um, and the other key thing about the research was it wasn't just the court transcripts and newspaper articles. I was really fortunate that I was able to trace some of the relatives of the women that I write about mm -hmm. in the Radium Girls, and they were very generous in giving me interviews. So I was able to ask them, you know, what was your great aunt like? What was your sister like? How did she feel when this happened? You know, what did she like to do before she got sick? Um, and to try and really bring these women to life, you know, with personality, you know, the pets they had, the dishes that they like to cook, uh, the clothes they like to wear, you know, and all of these sorts of details were really important to me. And obviously the relatives could shine a light on that in a way that no book or, you know, academic archive could ever do. And I, and I have to say, that's something that I absolutely loved about your book. I think you do this beautiful job of showing the reader, not that they're, not just that there's this story, because I mean, you could have, honestly, you could have just told the story of their fight in the courts without even, you know, bringing up these women individually. And it still would have made a fantastic story. But, you know, you really make them come to life and you force the reader to kind of come to grips with the fact that they were lied to constantly. And it literally these lies stole their lives from these from these yeah. women. Um, you know, how important was it for you to make sure that these women weren't just 
a newspaper story or a statistic. You know, you spend a lot of time in the book really talking about their lives. So was that something that you always knew you wanted to do? Oh, yeah, yeah, hugely. I mean, as, as I say, the thing that really struck me when I realized there was no book that kind of told their story was that it, people had forgotten who they were. You know, these, these were ordinary women with, with real lives, you know, just like you or I have. You know, mm-hmm. you have dreams, you have ambitions, you have things you want to do, and all of that was robbed from them. So for me, it was really important to know that Grace Fryer worked in a bank or, you know, that Albina Larice really wanted to have children um, because unless you understand their individual lives, you can't understand their personal tragedies. Mm-hmm. It just becomes, as you say, a statistic, you know, someone else that got hurt. Whereas in bringing them to life, I wanted people to go on the journey with them and kind of grieve with them and rage with them and really feel that loss that they experienced as well. And so in addition to, you know, the the newspaper clippings and the and the articles and these interviews, were you able to find first-hand accounts from these women like were there actual like journals and things like that as well yeah that that was really special so Catherine uh, Sharp one of the radium girls she was a writer so she actually wrote a whole autobiography mm-hmm. um, unfortunately only a very small extract of it survives mm-hmm. but I was able to use that short extract um, the court testimonies obviously are their first person accounts sure but also I think the one of the most special things for me was uh, discovering their letters, mm-hmm. particularly Pearl Payne and Catherine Dunahoo's letters, um, because that was really special. They were in a, a local museum, and I don't think, to be honest, that even the kind of museum knew <laughs> the power of what they had. Right. And so researching there in a back room, you know, just flipping through this folder that had been on a shelf, it wasn't part of an archive. And here were Catherine's letters talking about her loneliness in hospital, you know, celebrating the fact that, uh, you know, when they won their victory and, you know, commemorating her friendships with her friends when they came round to attend to her on her sick bed and brought her roast chicken and things like that, you know, these extraordinary personal details that, again, just enabled me to bring them to life. Mm Um, so in addition to the Radium Girls, something else that you know, I mentioned in the kind of the short intro here, you also are a ghostwriter for people. And that, yeah. is, so that, this fascinates me. The word implies, of course, that you are in the background. And I mean, a lot of times the books that you're ghostwriting on, your name is, you know, inside of the book, but it's not even on the cover in a few times. And, but yeah. I imagine a large amount of the actual writing process falls on your shoulders. So maybe can you just take us through that process? I've never had a chance to sit down with an author before who is a, a ghostwriter. So when it comes to finding people that you're going to work with and then and then moving forward with the stories that they're going to tell, how does that process work? Um, well, I, I find them in different ways. Sometimes it's me approaching people that I think have an amazing story. Um, sometimes the publisher has already done a deal with that person because they have an amazing story, but they need someone to help, and so they approach me or... Sometimes an agent approaches me to do it. And the process of ghostwriting, it, it can vary because it depends how involved the person wants to be. So sometimes I've worked with people who have written their story in a manuscript that perhaps, you know, isn't publishable as it is. Mm-hmm. Because the publisher might not feel it's, you know, good enough, to be frank. Um, but obviously I can draw on what they've done. Uh-huh. So sometimes you do have a starting point in that way. 
but even if you have that, the, the process of it is basically you sit down and you interview the person. Um, so you ask them questions about the different scenes in their life, mm-hmm. you learn what's important to them, and really get to know them. And the way I work as a ghostwriter is I don't write a word until I have taken them through their whole story in the course of however many sessions mm-hmm. are needed. Um, because I don't feel I can start writing until I've got the whole story in right. my head and know them as, as well as I can. Um, and then my process, both for ghostwriting and for the Radium Girls and other books like it, is I create a timeline. So whatever my research is, I put it all in chronological <laughs> order, essentially. Uh-huh. Knowing, for example, that as well. So, um, for example, with the Radium Girls, um, I mentioned Albina Larice wanting to have children. Mm-hmm. So I needed to kind of drip that in throughout the narrative, if you see what I mean. Right. I'm always looking for those details when I'm ghostwriting as well. You know, something that becomes important later, you need to hint at as you go through. So that's another reason why the timeline is helpful so that you don't, you know, you know exactly what you're plotting out. And then I start writing. And so with ghostwriting, as I say, I wait until I've done all the sessions. Then I write the manuscript and I send it to them and, you know, they can change things if they want. I've been very fortunate, touch wood, <laughs> that generally people haven't changed too much. They feel I've captured their voice, which is um, always a real privilege um, to know that I've done that to help them have a voice. And so good. something else, I'm, I'm going to ask you just a little bit about some of the, you know, I, do, I know you do a lot of editing as well for people. Um, so... I'm curious, you know, when you're writing your own story or when you're doing ghostwriting, having such all this experience as an editor as well, and then when you're telling someone else's story, you know, you're a professional writer. So are there ever times, whether you're when you're working with another editor or you're ghostwriting and, you know, they'll, you know, the the person whose story you're telling or perhaps your editor says, you know, maybe we need to try and remove X, Y and Z or maybe we need to add something in there. And then just, you know, what is it like in your mind kind of knowing that you are so adept at kind of every aspect of the writing you know I, I assume there's sometimes some interesting situations where you kind of have to explain you know no no this is the this is the way you want to go just trust me on this yeah yeah I mean I think I think that's probably true for every writer and I think every writer should know that as well you know an, an edit is a subjective thing but you should always feel able to say no this is a really important bit that needs to stay and um, I think I would say that having you know being an editor really helps me as a writer um, and I know my publishers have kind of said to me that it helps because I try and, you know, I, I write what I write and then I go through it again with my editor pat on. And because of having had that editing experience, I'm not afraid to actually say, you know what, that paragraph isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know what, this chapter's too long. We need to take some stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm perhaps more open to some other writers might be at cuts because <laughs> I can understand the publisher's perspective sometimes um but it does come in handy as well uh, with the radium girls i um had so much information that the manuscript i originally delivered was too long so i knew i had to cut it mm-hmm. uh, and my editor made some suggestions but i also did my own edit because she wanted to take a big chunk out of the final third and i was like no i want to spread the cuts that i know are necessary <laughs> throughout the book <laughs> so, so that's why i did so is there so when you're doing either from an editing or an author you know from a writing standpoint uh do you tend to kind of send the whole manuscript or when you have an editor is it something where you'll send them you know chapter by chapter i guess i'm always curious you know 
especially as being someone who has such experience in editing, I, I'm trying to imagine sending someone a full manuscript and then having them say, all right, we need to chop 60,000 words. I feel like it would probably hurt less if you were sending them, you know, chapter by chapter. Um, the idea is always to deliver a full manuscript mm-hmm. because it's obviously very hard for an editor to take an overview if they haven't got it all there in front of them, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so sometimes if you're running late on a deadline, you may deliver, you know, in parts. Um, but I think that makes the job much harder for the editor. So it's always better to deliver in full. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that works, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so And then actually from a ghostwriting standpoint, do you tend to do... Mostly nonfiction. I know that you've written across you know a large number of genres, but when you're telling someone else's story, does it does it tend to be you know their actual kind of personal story or, or yeah it, yeah, that... yeah the, the books I've done today have all been nonfiction. Um, yeah, so it's then when we sit down to have our sessions, it's them telling me their memories, describing their memories, and me mm-hmm. pushing them for insight or descriptions, and then I go away and write that into a. Mm-hmm gripping narrative it's always a really interesting process because you're sitting there listening to someone talk but my writer's brain is always still going so you think oh that sounds like a chapter ending or Mm -hmm. that's the real that's the turning point in the narrative that you've just told me about so you're kind of shaping it even as you're listening and so do you find when you are going to write in a different genre though do you try to you know spend a lot of time reading that genre ahead of time or just I guess I I, we interview so many people who kind of, I don't want to say stay in their lane because that sounds derogatory, but they'll tend to stick with one specific genre. But as someone who writes a, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and kind of across the board, how do you get yourself in that mindset when you know that you're going to be writing, say, uh, a nonfiction versus you know, something that might be uh, more on the romance side, for example? Yeah, I, I t- I, t- to date, I've mostly written nonfiction rather than fiction. Okay. Um, but obviously within that, there's a huge spectrum of things. So, yes, I would definitely say I, I read to get myself in in the zone, in the mindset. So I've just finished um, a ghosting job that was essentially a, a crime thriller. That was the style in which it was written. So I was reading a lot of Peter James um, before I started writing because um, I was ghosting for a policeman. Mm-hmm. And so Peter James has uh, the Roy Gray series. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. Um, which is a brilliant series. I absolutely love it. I, you know, loved it even before I knew I was writing this sort of thing. And so it was helpful to read that. To you know, I really admire his work. So to see what he's doing, and you know, I think every writer benefits from reading other people because you know you've got, it, <laughs> you know inspires you, doesn't it? So, right. Yeah. Um, do you have a? a kind of a preference when you're as a reader do you have a preference of a genre if you know say you're not reading for a project do you have something that you know a type of book that you tend to find yourself leaning towards more often than not um i read quite uh widely but i i do like crime um i like jody uh, pico so you know those kind of character driven mm-hmm. issue based novels I, I like getting my teeth into but I also read you know Louise Bagshaw or Louise Mench as she now is you know much lighter stuff for escapist reading Mm -hmm. so it's really broad the Mm -hmm. things I like to read I have to say we uh we were fortunate enough we uh Jodi was actually in in town in Cleveland we actually we got to host an event with her for uh yeah when small great things came out we got to sit down and and spend about an hour chatting with her about that yeah that's 
that's one of those situations where you're sitting with someone and you you just have they have like an aura of that uh, around them of just being yeah. just supremely talented. Yeah, she she was absolutely wonderful. I, I bet she she's one of my favorite writers. Mm-hmm. I just love her. So when you aren't writing, reading, or editing, how do you like to spend your free time? Uh, I love theatre, so I go to the theatre a lot to watch it. Um, I love doing it in my spare time as well, although in the past two years I've been too busy writing <laughs> to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like, I like acting and directing as well, so I do that in my spare time, or just you know chilling out with my husband and <laughs> going to National Trust properties and things like that. Yeah. Uh, we actually happen to be, in addition to book nerds, we are the- we're theater nerds as well. Oh, so, yeah. a- any um, any shows that you've seen recently that you were a really big fan of? Oh, um, I saw one. It, it was last year now, but um, at the National Theatre, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which mm-hmm. is an August Wilson play, mm-hmm. uh, and it was just extraordinary, an amazing production. I think he wrote the screenplay for Fences. Mm-hmm. It was just Oscar nominated, and the script was just incredible, just so mm-hmm. zinging and just uh, yeah, fabulous production. And I would be remiss. Any so there's a, a it's almost like a law. Anytime I speak with any author who lives in New York City and is a theater fan, I have to ask if they've seen Hamilton. And since you're in the UK, I have to ask: Have you had a chance to see The Cursed Child yet? Yes, I have. I went in the summer. Yeah. How was it? You don't have to do any spoilers, but how was uh, well, it? I can't, I can't say spoilers, but I loved it. It was great. Okay. I I'm, I believe it's traveling to the United States in the near future, so I'm going to try and find myself. Yeah. It's, it's worth it. It's worth, it's worth it. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, do you have any plans currently for your own works that are um, kind of similar along the lines of the Radium Girls, or are you ten, Are you sort of you know, in the in the research process now trying to find the next story you're going to write? Um, I would love to do something in the vein of Radium Girl, so I am thinking of ideas at the moment. Um, I'm also super busy uh, doing ghosting projects at the moment, mm-hmm. so I've kind of just finished one, I'm in the middle of another, and I've got another one booked in after that, so <laughs> it's about finding time in between writing sure. uh, books to focus on one idea and, and flesh it out. Absolutely. So towards the end of our interviews, we like to do um, nine kind of quick questions. We call them the nerd nine, just because we like alliteration. Um, okay. We say that they're, that they're rapid fire, but they never tend to actually end up that <laughs> way, which is okay. Um, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished? I think it was Peter James, actually. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it, um, but <laughs> one in the Roy Grace series. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, the sofa, probably, in my works. living room. Uh, do you have a, a guilty pleasure? Like, mine would be sharing way too many pictures on social media of my two dogs. Oh, guilty pleasure. Uh, salted caramel chocolate. Oh, you and my wife would be very good <laughs> friends. <laughs> um, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Oh, just one. Um... Oh, that's really hard to narrow it down. <laughs> Where would I love to go? Uh, Canada. There you go. See, this is why these never end up being rapid fire. I <laughs> I feel like I should send these ahead of time. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Oh, uh, Christmas. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea, but only occasionally. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. I think I know the answer to this one, but do you have a favorite food? 
pasta, actually spaghetti, oh, Italian. Okay. <laughs> and then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? My husband. Oh, that's a very good one. Uh, <laughs> our last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading the Radium Girls? I hope they are inspired by these incredible women and that they remember them. That's perfect. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you so much. I hope it was, I didn't, I didn't waffle too much and it was all you needed. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.